Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I'm really excited and pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, Amir Hussein. Amir is professor of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University here in Los Angeles, and I've had the pleasure of already speaking with Amir on a number of occasions, so I look forward to the conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dean Hill. It's a pleasure to be here at the HUC. I've already heard about some of the press you're getting here for your new book, Muslims and the Making of America. The word in the title that clearly seems to be intending to capture our attention is making of America. There's a story here about the place of Muslims in the American story that's clearly counterintuitive. So unexpected. What's going on with Muslims in the making of America? So there's a couple of things there. You know, many people think that Islam is a new religion in America. And there's some truth to that. You know, most Muslims in America, people like me, are immigrants post-1965, you know, with civil rights, who had changes to uh, immigrants law. But what we forget is that at least 30, maybe 40 percent of American Muslims are African Americans. So allow me to interrupt you there. I think of the word Orthodox Muslims versus Nation of Islam Muslims. So can you break that number down for me? Absolutely. So almost all of the African American Muslims in this country are what we call traditional Orthodox Sunni Muslims, not members of the Nation of Islam. Many of them may have come through the Nation of Islam, although many didn't. The Nation of Islam still exists under the leadership of Louis Farrakhan. My own sense is maybe 20,000, maybe 30,000, you know, members of the Nation of Islam who follow Farrakhan, as compared to a million and a half, at least, uh, African-American Sunni Muslims. So the majority of African-American Muslims are people who would be, you know, Sunni Muslims. There's some Shia Muslims, there's some conversion, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon there, of of African-American Shia Muslims, but for the most part, these are people who are Sunni Muslims who may at one time have been associated with the Nation of Islam, but left that. And certainly after Elijah Muhammad dies, his son, Warth Muhammad, it sort of changes the nation of Islam, brings into Sunni orthodoxy, which is why Louis Farrakhan sort of starts it up again, saying, look, you're, you're not doing the teachings of your father. Right, 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 right. It becomes a big issue. I right. know. That's a huge percentage of Americans. Absolutely. And so that already, simply by virtue of being African-American, right. that, that retrojects you back to the beginning of, of the nation. And that's really the key here, that we think of the slaves that were brought here from Africa to literally help build this country. And we forget that, you know, 10 percent of the West African slaves were Muslim because at that point in time, if you're coming from Mali, if you're coming from Ghana, you've got Muslim empires, Muslim kingdoms in that part of West Africa. So we've been speaking about uh, the role of Quran and Quranic learning in Islam. We were just talking about that briefly. Does the fact that there was a significant minority of African slaves coming to this country that were Muslim, does that correlate in any way to literacy? Absolutely, because some of those slaves were literate, and so we have stories, for example, one of the earliest narratives that was published in England in 1734, so two years before George Washington is born, we have a story written about a Muslim slave, uh, Job bin Solomon, who is freed by his owner in the colonies because he recognizes that this person is literate, can read Arabic, and so it's a wonderful, wonderful kind of story. And 
and of course, there's a suspicion there of slaves who can read and write. Right. And so it, it was quelled in many absolutely. ways. And so you have the sort of oppression of Islam, not just simply because it's a religion other than Christianity, you want your slaves to have the religion of your household, but you also want your slaves to be uneducated, because if they can right. start to read, they can talk to each other, they can communicate right. ideas, if they can do it in a language that you can't speak, that's even more dangerous. Now, is there any cohesion that Islam afforded the slaves that non-Muslim slaves didn't have. I think so. There's a little bit of you know mutual recognition that you find someone who's a Muslim, even if it's in the simple kinds of things of dietary uh, acts. And you and I have spoken about this before. That's one of the reasons I love as a Muslim coming to Jewish events, especially events here at HUC. Never have to ask about the food. Never have to ask is there, is that a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich? You know, I'm, I'm going to assume it's a turkey sandwich here. You know that kind of shared connection that the food that you're, you're literally eating, you know, is acceptable, ritually acceptable to you. Certainly, some of the language that you know you may speak you know, Wolof or another language, you may speak Swahili, you may speak Arabic, you know, you have some words in common and there's a sense of, of connection uh, there. Do we have any sense that existing African-American Muslims today are actual descendants of Muslims from the slave period? We do, and so many of them, of course, had to convert, many of them had to take on the religion of of the household, of the master that, that literally owned them, but some were able to, in secret, you know, preserve their identity. So again, very similar parallels, let's say, to medieval Spain with the mm -hmm. conversos, where you had to be converted, but in secret you could preserve your traditions. The issue becomes, you know, can you preserve those traditions in secret and pass them on to the next generation, or is that lost? And so so you see wonderful examples, uh, I was talking about this with Professor Firestone, in New Mexico, where you have these families of Jews who had, it's been so long since they were connected to that ancestry that they don't remember they're Jews anymore, but they do these interesting rituals around Saturday, Friday night and Saturday and things like that. So you do see Muslims, and there are some Muslim families, particularly in the Carolinas, that can trace the lineage back, literally back to the slaves that were brought. But that, to be fair, that's a minority. Mm -hmm. You know, The majority of these slaves were converted, they had to not practice their Islam. and so. That's what leads to when, when Muslims start to emigrate to this country, not as slaves, but coming in from, let's say, the Ottoman uh, Empire at the turn of the last uh, century. That's when you start seeing some of these kinds of tensions, you know, between Muslims who are brought in and African Americans who may not know their own traditions and history and sort of give authority to immigrant communities. Where I'm going with this is it's fascinating in contemporary America that. Other than uh, an, a few examples, so for example, here at USC, Sherman Jackson, you know, Professor Jackson is one of the great scholars of Islam, one of the most important sort of Muslim you know, leaders, not just in America, but in the world, who happens to be African-American. But oftentimes what you have, the leadership in mosques, for example, tends to be immigrant Muslims, not African-American Muslims, uh -huh. I think, because of that sort of history uh, and tension. Now, part of that, and I write about this in the book, is that even though Muslims have been here for centuries since the slave trade, the first mosque that we see, like a structure that was built as a mosque and used only as a mosque, is only about 100 years old, about 1915. You know, uh -huh. Because go, that goes back to your point of, you know, you couldn't, in the slave days, Build a mosque on the plantation. I don't mean to laugh about that, but you know, it's that you, right. you can imagine the slave going to the master saying, "Hi, right, master, right, we're Muslims. Right. Can we build a, a, a mosque on your no plantation?" No problem. Right. A couple of centuries later, so we have you know Muslims uh, that go back to the slave trade, but we have you know organizational structures and so that that are uh, just a little over 100 years old. Does Islam have some kind of um, regulation with respect to Muslims trading in Muslim slaves? No, and unfortunately, that that 
was one of the tragedies there is that you had some of the people who sold these slaves were Muslims. And there it had to do, I think, more with ethnic identities. You know, these were foreigners in their land. Oftentimes, African-American Muslims, when they converted uh, to Islam, would talk about the racism in white Christianity and the slave history, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, you know, Muslims, particularly some Arab Muslims, particularly some African Muslims, were involved in the slave trade. There, who made slaves of, of, of fellow Muslims. We've spoken about the very, very early strata of, of non-Native American populations, and Muslims are right there. Let's talk about the birth of the Republic. Okay. In America, Jews are passionate, passionate about America for many reasons, for, all, for great reasons, really good reasons that Jews love this country. One of the items of our, of our adoration, if you will, is the letter of George Washington to the Jews of Rhode Island. Mm. Now, I think in one of the versions of that letter, I'm not an Americanist, but I think he cites Jews and maybe he calls them Mohammedans. Okay. I'm not sure about yeah, that. Yeah. We should look. Is that the case? I, I don't know that, I, and I don't know that letter, but certainly that, that was the term for Muslims then, Mohammedans. And right. so you have, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, you know, before this country is this country, owning a copy of the Quran, uh -huh. you know, and reading that teaching himself Arabic, and Jefferson was pretty good at it, you know, given that he had no tutors. Mm. Now, you want to be very clear that Jefferson was no fan of Islam. He had no use for Islam, didn't like Islam, in particular like Christianity. Right, he was, he was a, a deist. A deist exactly. yeah. But, you know, when you're trying to write something like the Declaration of Independence, it helps having a comparative lens to which you do this. And so for him, of course, this is a time in which the other great empire to Christendom, if you will, you know, in the 1700s, is, of course, the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire, empire uh, right. Islam. And so you know about this. So Jefferson gets a copy of the Quran, you know, which is in the uh, Library of Congress now, which essentially comes out of Mr. Jefferson's you know, personal library. So you have those kinds of things taking place where there's recognition here. You know, 1821, when Jefferson's writing his autobiography, and he writes about the freedom of religion being extended precisely to the Mohammedan, to the Jew, to the Hindu, to the infidel. You know, that this idea that when we're talking about freedom of religion, are we talking about freedom of religion just for Christians? You right. know, is it that different kinds of Christians right. have freedom of religion? Jeff's saying no. This is for everyone, whether that you're might Jew, be, whether you're Muslim. That must be the citation then. It's probably not the letter to the runner. Okay. I'll, I'll check it out. But yeah. that, that's right, because as, as Enlightenment thinkers, they had to test the boundaries of their theory, and right. they were arguing for freedom of religion. Well, okay, does that actually mean freedom of religion, including the infidel? And so they go down the list. Right. Or does it mean that Quakers and Baptists and Episcopalians right. do what they want to do? Right, 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 right. Okay, so regardless of the makeup of the population in the United States or the late colonial period, the whole idea of America encounters Islam as part of its testing these boundaries that define America. Absolutely, in good and bad ways, too. So in a negative way, if you think, for example, of the modern American Navy, the founding of that Navy really connects to the Barbary Coast Pirates. You know, you look right. at the Marine Hymn. You know, I play that sometimes for my students in my Islam class. From the halls of Montezuma, we all know halls of Montezuma because we're three hours from the Mexican border. Right, right, right. You know. right. But the next bit, to the shores of Tripoli. Why is this Marine song talking about Libya? Well, because you had pirates sailing up and down the Barbary Coast. You know, the, now they're Somali pirates. We have a navy to fight the, the British in the Revolutionary War. You know, once we defeat the British, we kind of don't need a navy anymore, except we want to ship our goods. You know, how do we turn a profit as a new country? 
and the British would essentially pay off the pirates to, to stop piracy going on. Well, after we defeat the British, the British aren't going to pay off the pirates. Right. They have no interest right. in helping us. We don't have any money to pay off the pirates, so we have to reconstitute the Navy. And so you look at John Paul Jones, who really the father of the modern American Navy, sort of made his name fighting in one of the ships against the Barbary Coast pirates. So that the oldest military monument that we have in this country which is now on the grounds of the Naval Academy, you know, carved in 1804, is the monument to the Barbary Coast pirates. So you have that kind of history, you mm. know, that, that goes on, which isn't a positive history. Any right, but, it's, but it shapes the contours of, of the nation, with the Muslim uh, world. But then you have literally the making of America, going back to the first question you asked me, you know, we don't think about the labor that the slaves did. You know, how is the South able to build itself? Well, through slave labor. After the War of 1812, the White House gets destroyed, and it's rebuilt. Who rebuilds it? Well, slave labor. 10% of those West African slaves are, are Muslims. So you have Muslims who've been literally helping in the building of what it means to be a, a, a country. So what's the next, I don't know, major wave of patently recognizably Muslims in America? And so what happens then is you have folks from the Ottoman Empire who come out here in the 19th century, who come as farmers, they settle in places like, you know, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, or Ross, North Dakota, you know, because they're farmers there and you're given, you know, land. Like they, have, they have the land grants. And they, they you have the land grants, you open up, you come here, you can open up these parts of America. And so, you know, you see mosques in those kinds of places, like, like the first mosque that I spoke of, the first mosque that we have evidence for to be built and done as a mosque, is in a little town in Maine that was basically a, a mill town where uh, there were two mills in the, in the town and one of the owners went to Albania because he wanted to get workers. Like, who are you going to get to work in these factories when you start building these factories in the 19th century? Who are the kind of workers that will spend time working in those factories? You know, Henry Ford for example, you know, in mm. Dearborn. Now, now, this is in the 20th century, not the 19th century, but same kind of thing. You bring in, you know, why are there so many Arabs in, in Dearborn, Michigan? Well, a lot of them are brought in to work the Ford plants. And when it, did they come? So the, the, that would have been at the beginning of, really the beginning of the, well, beginning of the 20th century. So that's in, in you know, 1915 is when this mosque uh, is built. You have a mosque in Ross, North Dakota. You have a mosque in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And you think, you know, why is it in these places and not in New York? Like, you mean, right. There's a mosque right. in Brooklyn. But you also have these places because Muslims start coming over as farmers, as itinerant workers, you know, doing that kind of thing. Is there any mutual aid society or anything that binds the various Muslim waves of immigration? Yeah, and what typically happens, it more happens along ethnic lines rather than religious lines. So it's not like a solidarity group for Muslims. It's the Albanians coming together. Say, okay, we're Albanians. We like to eat this kind of food and listen to this kind of music and speak in this kind of language. Let's get together and help people that do that. With the Ottoman Empire, we think of that as Turkish, which it really isn't. You have folks who may be ethnically Kurdish, who may be ethnically Turkish, who may be Slavs, you know, from, Alba from Albania, from Kosovo. And so they're creating mutual aid societies, you know, for, them, for themselves. And so, for example, when my parents came to Canada in 1970, you know, very few Pakistanis there. And so you have this organization of Pakistani Canadians, you know, before you have an organization of Muslim Canadians. It's really more about, you know, how do you do this kind of of support for for each other rather than a pan-Islamic kind of thing. That comes a little bit that later. That comes later. Yeah. Right. With the Jews, it was both at the same time. It was a negotiation between the Jews, because the Jewish identity is also a, a national identity of sorts, and it uh, sometimes competes with, sometimes cooperates with the sub-identities, if you will. But it's a similar dynamic. Yeah. Um, we call them Landsmannschaft. Okay. They're uh, groups of origin, mutual aid, and, and whatever. 
All right. So first of all, uh, Ottoman Jews also came uh, uh, in the first quarter of the 20th century, and that's my um, parentage okay. as well. They came in the teens, okay. largely to avoid conscription in the uh, Ottoman army, yeah, which was army. A, a rough deal. We're now moving into the industrialization of America is a motivation to bring in workers. It seems like that right. has a lot to do with this. Right. And uh, they go to the Ottoman Empire. I suppose it's cheap labor, cheap to bring them over. Mm -hmm. There's a certain exploitative quality to this as well, mm -hmm. even though we're no longer in right. slavery. But, but it's also a, a better life. And I think, right. you know, if we look at one of our founding myths of America is that we are a nation of immigrants. We came here, you know, to make a better life for ourselves in country of, of origin. My dad could have been sort of a laborer in Pakistan, but, you know, he got a little bit of education going to England as part of the Commonwealth to be a, a mechanic. I was able to come to Canada and become a mechanic. Then he actually worked, uh, funny enough, for Ford, you know, building trucks for wow. 30 years. But it's that kind of, of life that, you know, you can spend your time working. It really is this, the ability to succeed here in America that unfortunately parts of the Muslim world is cut off to people. You know, in Egypt, you can graduate from university and get a degree and be really skilled. But unless your father's an important person who knows people, or unless you have money to bribe the officials, you're not going to get anywhere in the system. I'm not saying bribery doesn't occur in America. Of course it does. But what I'm saying is, if you're a smart kid with a university degree, you can do well for right. yourself right. here in America in a way that countries right. of origin you may not be able to there's, do. Fundamentally, there's truth to the myth. The myth, the myth that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and what have you. I'm a professor. My sister's an engineer. Both my parents, they have high school education. You know, they're, right. they're laborers. Right, really. Right. But that's this country. Right, you know, where you right. And it's that. not that uncommon a story. That's right. For many Muslims, that's the appeal of coming to America. It's not that Muslims, you know, hate America or hate democracy. They want this precisely because they may come from places where they don't have this. Right. Like, you know, we talk about a certain presidential candidate who shall not be named, you know, saying say the elections are rigged. Go to Egypt. That's a rigged election I'll show you where the president wins with 97% of the vote. <laughs> right. you know, that's clearly a rigged election. We don't have that right, right here. Right. No, we're very fortunate. And uh, what's more accessible for us, or cheaper labor for us, is still a step up for someone else. And um, and that's an opportunity for America to, to attract well, and, and uh, the other, gumption. Absolutely. And, and also the, the idea, and sometimes it's cast in negative terms, assimilation. I don't mean to use it in a negative way. I think it's a really powerful kind of thing because you can come here to America and you can get into the best university. It's not based on where you came from or what your language is. Or your, exactly. It used to be, exactly. Not who your so father, long Who your father yeah. was, that kind of thing. No, ab yeah, absolutely. It's a lot better. Absolutely. But you have those kinds of, of opportunities for That's people. Right. And I use the university as an example. Anyone's list of the top ten universities in the world, maybe there's Oxford, maybe there's Cambridge, maybe there's University of Tokyo, maybe University of Paris, but at least six of those universities are American universities. Because we're attracting talent who, who want to yeah, be able to leverage their talent. We're the right. best in the world at higher right. education. Right. Yeah. I've adopted a, uh, an arbitrary idiom to distinguish between negative and positive assimilation. I, I refer to, because Jews, of course, are very concerned about this as well. Sure. I use assimilation as the negative language okay. to mean blending into the point of losing one's particular identity and acculturation mm -hmm. as the positive mode in which one strikes the balance of preserving one's cultural identity and becoming uh, fully integrated into society. The, f the mere fact that acculturation, as I define it, can even take place. Mm -hmm. The phenomenon itself is, at the very least, a new world phenomenon, I would argue, but certainly an American phenomenon. And that's the balance that we're always trying to strike, that, um, that America allows us to.
Absolutely. Other places do too. Canada does in sure. a different way. Sure. But other New World countries as well. I think the Old World's tougher. Yeah, absolutely. Where you st you still are tied into you know in patriarchal terms who your father was. Both as the guild, kind of you work in this thing because that's what your family does, or your father's not an important person, so you're not going to have any chance of moving right. up in society. Right. You know, here it's, and, and you're right to point out though that it is historically within our lifetimes that we see that. Yes, like, you know, yes. Yeah. my dad, truth, or, yeah, exactly. Of right. exclusions of you know Jews not being allowed to this university or Jews right. not being able to own land in this That's particular right. place. Or exactly buying property in certain neighborhoods. But even in the worst of times, it was so much better than the old world, at least for the religious minorities. I'm not sure about African Americans. I think it yeah. depends on the period. No, I, absolutely, and, and that's one of the things that we don't think about. You know, when we think about who are American Muslims, we tend to think perhaps of people like me who come from South Asia or people who are Arab. But we forget that at least a quarter of American Muslims are African. American, that number may be as high as 40%. You know, let, let's, let's go with a quarter. You know, at least a quarter of us are African Americans, people who have no doubt about their Americanness, who haven't been in another right. country right. for there's, 300 right. years. There's no, there's no, right, there's, there's no other language there. That, right. So when you go to mosque, is it something of a rainbow? Absolutely. And so one of the things that's really fascinating about going to a mosque is the ethnic diversity. I go to a particular mosque in Culver City. You walk in, you'll see African-American folks. You'll see South Asian folks. You'll see Arab folks, meaning Middle Eastern, Iranian, you know, kinds of things. You'll see white folks there, which is really interesting in a way that so many Christian denominations are still very much either racially or ethnically yeah. uh, segregated. You know, where you walk in, you'll see, oh, this Latino congregation, or oh, this is the sort of you know white Methodist group, and the Korean Methodists come an hour early. Right, 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 right. And do right. it. And now, part of that is again, Language, you're thinking right. of acculturation assimilation. You know, do you want to do it in Korean or do you want to do it in English? But part of it becomes, why aren't the Korean Methodists, you know, hanging out with the, with the American Methodists? Right. You know? Right. It's a, <laughs> is it right to assume that part of Islam's capacity to integrate across the Muslim nationalities, perhaps a bit better mm -hmm. than Christianity, is it right to assume that that's because of A, the fact that it's still a small minority in America, and B, that there is a certain simultaneity of immigration that a lot of these Muslims, African Americans notwithstanding, have come within a generation of one another so that everyone is new together? Absolutely. So, so I think there's a couple of things going on there. You know, one is just the, the waves of immigration happening at around a particular time, so after 65, after changes to immigration. And that brings in two, you know, sort of qualified immigrants. What I mean by that is that, you know, if you came in legally, you had to meet certain criteria about, you know, education and wealth and those kinds of, of things. So American Muslims in that sense are an American success story. You know, most of us tend to be, you know, doctors, lawyers, engineers, business owners. My family was anomalous in the sense of my family being essentially, you know, factory. Collar, exactly. Right. My, my Muslim friends, their, their fathers were doctors, their fathers were business owners, you know, that kind of thing there. And so you have that going on, which gives you certain privileges, you know, that you don't have if you're uneducated, if you're not wealthy. But you also see interesting things happening certainly in the last 20, 30 years with refugees, where you may come in because of, let's say, civil wars in Somalia or Kosovo, Albania. How do you acculturate in a setting that may be very different from yours? So we saw some issues in the last little bit in Minnesota, where you've got you know a fairly large Somali community. The Somalis kind of look different from you know right. the white Lutheran right. folks the Lutherans, in, right, in right. Minnesota. 
And so sometimes that leads to issues that, you know, you see a black face in New York City, you don't think twice. You know, you see a black face in, in St. Paul, maybe some issues there. Or Dearborn, yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, you also have, you know, the first Muslim elected to Congress, Keith Ellison, African-American from Minnesota. I think Jews think two things. I think, by and large, Jews view ourselves as offering something, mm. as having a lens on the American experience that is worth hearing and knowing and engaging with because we too have a success story in the Jewish American story. We relish it and we enjoy it and we want to share it and uh, that's the best of us and the best of America in our eyes. The second thing we think is that we assume every other minority also has something of its own to offer, to share, to enrich in this tapestry that is America. What should we be looking for from American Islam to be that contribution, that perspective, that gift to the American story? I think there's interesting connections there between American Jews and American Muslims. And so let me say, just for me personally, but I think also for Muslims as a whole, what's one of the things that you admire about the Jewish community? Well, the learning. I'm sitting here in your office now. Clearly, you're a dean at, at a you know HUC, but there's lots of books here. You know, what do you associate with the Jewish community? The first thing that comes to my mind is intelligence, knowledge, creation of knowledge. You know, those kinds of things, and that for me is one of the hallmarks of Islamic society. And so, you come here precisely because you've got a six and eight of the best. 10 universities in the world are here in the United States. So you have someone like an Ahmed Zawail, you know, who comes from Egypt to go to Caltech and work there and then eventually wins a Nobel Prize in chemistry there because Caltech's chemistry and physics department is a little better than the <laughs> physics and chemistry department in, in Cairo. I think one of the things you can look to in the same way that we look at the intellectual contribution, by that I don't mean just simply like intellectuals, university folks, but I mean doctors, lawyers, politicians, that kind of thing. In the Jewish community, you're starting to see those things happening in the Muslim community in a really interesting way, looking, and this may surprise Jewish listeners, you know, looking to the Jewish community as role models. How do you do this? Because you've had a much longer history, you who are Jewish, of surviving, not just surviving, but thriving as a minority in a country that was often incredibly openly hostile to you as Jews. And so I say this to my students about Islamophobia. I mean, sure, that's real. Sure, there's persecution of Muslims. But it's nothing like the anti-Semitism in this country. It's not like the anti-Semitism is in this country right now. Forget about historically right. Right. there. Right. And so I think that sense of how do you survive that? How do you build these institutions like an HUC? How do you create opportunities for students to develop and become religious leaders? You know, the Muslim community is just starting to do that now with places like Bayonne Claremont or uh, Zaytuna right, and, right, and Hayward, right, right. but clearly modeled on the Jewish experience here. So I think, you know, that sense of this is what it was like for you when you came to this country where you had to prove your American Rightness, you right. know, in interesting ways, joining the armed forces. Right. You know, you've got 6,000 Muslims who are in the armed forces. You know, that's they're a smaller percentage of the number of Jews, but it's, it's so, starting right. to increase. Right. You know, how do you show the love of 
the country. We start sort of peeling back the, the layers. It's the same kind of thing for the Jewish community. Of, oh, I didn't know he was Jewish. Well, oh, I didn't know he was Muslim. Like, I go to my cardiologist. He's a great cardiologist. I had no idea he was a Muslim from Iran, uh, you know, until I started right. talking to them about that kind of thing. American Muslims really are an American success story, just as American Jews are, you know, at the top levels of education, right. of income, of being the kind of, you know, white-collar professionals, the doctors, the lawyers, the engineers, the business owners. And though a much newer population in its majority, it comes with a leg up because the Jews came as absolutely as impoverished peasants, basically, I and mean, we were more literate, perhaps, than the average peasant in the old world. But picking up on what you're saying, that uh, a lot of the Muslims in America came already wanting to leverage their gifts that they were already able to develop a little bit. Absolutely. So there's there's real promise here. So I want to close with the following question: I see the potential. I see the promise that you're able to articulate. I think a lot of American non-Muslims are really, really concerned in the, on the negative side and hopeful on the positive side that American Islam can shape Islam writ large. Because just as we feel that Jews and other minorities have something to offer America, we feel that the American vision has something to offer the world, not in a jingoistic no. way or a colonial way, but in a civilizational way, a conversation. American Jews are able to shape Judaism worldwide because we are half of the population, the population and because we're a success story. Even in the most successful scenario, I don't think Muslims in America are going to approach half of world Islam ever. So that's going to be a harder scenario, but surely there's a way in which American Islam will be able to inflect worldwide Islam, I would argue, probably for the better. How is that going to happen? What's it going to look like? I think absolutely uh, changing sort of better. And, and of course, that's one of the fundamental differences. If, God forbid, all the Jews in America are wiped out, there'd only be six million Jews left in the world. You know, if, God forbid, all the Muslims in America are wiped out, there'd still be over a billion Muslims left in the world. So you're talking right. order right. of magnitude uh, difference there. But you do have, first of all, Muslim thinkers. So, for example, someone like Sherman Jackson, you know, here uh, at UCLA, someone like a Khaled Abou-Fadl, you know, people who are recognized around the world. You know, every so often you get these lists of, you know, the 100 most influential Muslims or the 500 most influential Muslims. And they're American Muslims who are on that list. You know, you have these amazing creative thinkers about Islam. I think for me, the key way in which we as American Muslims can influence the worldwide community is with our experience of being in the minority. And that's a connection with the Jewish tradition, that unlike the Jewish experience, you know, the majority of the world's Muslims live in places where they're majorities, it's a Muslim-majority place, you can dictate the right. discourse. But a significant number of us, you know, live in places where we're, where we're minorities. So India, for example, you know, Muslims make up maybe 12% of the population of India, so right. it's a minority. Except that 12% is like 130 million people. <laughs> right. of so a billion people exactly, in the country. Right? Exactly. You have that kind of thing going on. But, but what I'm trying to say here is that my experience as a Muslim, both in Canada and in the U.S., is being a member of a minority, where you have to negotiate. You have to have a sense of respect for the religious other, because that's who you are. And so I think how do you help the majority Muslim world sort of see 
from and, that and perspective be, of being be a minority. edified from that uh, experience. Absolutely. Which the, to we minorities see it as an intrinsically edifying experience, a difficult one, by the right. way, not always easy. No, 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 no. But, but, but also in the connections, so that, you know, I have Jewish teachers, I have Jewish friends, I have Christian teachers and, and, and friends, you know. You have a different relationship, let's say, to Christianity and Judaism than someone, let's say, in Pakistan, where you may not know someone who's a Christian, you may not know someone that's Jewish. It's very easy to be taken in by sort of anti-Semitic kinds of things if you've got, wait, wait a minute, my friend Josh, my friend Reuben, my friend Joanne, you know, I know those folks, they're not like that, let me talk with them about this. And so, you know, I think those kinds of things can help us out. The other part, and we saw this, you know, in the beginning of the Iraq war with, unfortunately, the violence uh, intra-Muslim between Sunnis and Shias right. in Iraq, right. that you had some of the most important Muslim leaders from America who happened to be Sunni and Shia saying, no, 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 we can't do this. You know, there's nothing in Islam that says we have to murder each other as Sunnis right, and Shias. Right. In it's fact, it's not a good way to example of America where in the beginnings of American Muslim experience, you didn't have a separate Shia and Sunni center because you didn't have enough people to do that kind of thing. You know, it's only when you have enough people that you can start right. breaking off into right. those things. There's the luxury of it. Yeah. Right. So I grew up, you know, in Toronto going to a mosque that was built by Albanian Muslims, basically Bosnian Muslims who ran it, and the most qualified person to lead the prayer was a Shia guy from Pakistan. And so here I am as a Sunni praying in a mosque that's built by people who are completely other than my ethnicity, being led in prayer by someone who's a Shia and I'm a Sunni, you know. And, and yet you're both Pakistani. And you're both Pakistani, exactly. Right. You have that kind of thing going on. Where I'm going with this is that's really the positive contribution that you can say, you know, how can worldwide Islam have these kinds of tensions between, let's say, Sunnis and Shias, forget about tensions, I'm talking about violence right, that takes place, war, right. or violence that takes place between, you know, Muslims and Christians, as unfortunately does in Pakistan, or violence that takes place, unfortunately, between, let's say, Muslims and Jews, you know, right. how can we, as American Muslims, help to create understanding of Islam, the challenges, those kinds of things? Well, here's to that future, then. Thank you. And the work that we have to do to get there. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining me. It was really a pleasure, pleasure as always. To be here. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.